coming to you from the Motor City. On today's episode, the doctors will shed light on the opioid crisis and its wide-reaching influences. You'll learn about this class of drug, its effects on the human body, and hear about three famous opioid deaths. Later in the episode, you will meet and get to know others in the office and learn about their various roles. That's coming up next on Detroit's Daily Docket. Hello, I'm Dr. Lachman Sung, and I'd like to welcome all of you back to this second episode of Detroit's Daily Docket. Before we get into today's topic, I want to thank all of you that have supported us by listening to our first episode and also those that have joined us on our Instagram page. Feel free to leave comments on that page, but if you have additional questions, you can drop us an email. Our email address is DetroitsDailyDocket at gmail.com. Some of the comments that we have already received is to have a further discussion about how to properly fill out a death certificate, what are some of the nuances with the manner of death, and then also cover some postmortem changes. Rest assured, we will touch on these topics in this season, but we will definitely delve in a much more deep fashion in season two. Now, getting back to today's topic, in this episode, we are going to begin to talk about drug deaths. Over the last few years, the number of people dying of drug-related deaths has been solidly increasing. Most people think that it's a cause of death that involves only the younger ages, let's say late teens, 20s, and 30s. And yes, it is true that there are a lot of drug-related deaths in these age ranges, but something that many people are not aware of is that we are seeing more and more people in the older age groups being affected. In our county, it's no longer uncommon to see people well into their 70s and beyond die of drugs. I'm not talking just one or two people. Last year alone, in 2019, we had over 150 people die of drugs who were 60 years of age or above. This is a topic that is so big that it's not possible to cover in a single episode. So for today, Drs. Lavity and Reyes are going to be explaining one part of that problem. And it's something that I'm sure you've heard of. It's the opioid crisis. They'll give you background information about what opioids are, trends that we're seeing, and how it's affecting medical examiner offices. They'll also discuss three famous opioid deaths as examples of how the typical findings in these cases are seen. And later on in the episode, we'll change gears a little and introduce you to some of the other positions in their office and have them tell you what they do in their own words. But for now, Dr. Lavity, the microphone is yours. We thought we would start off our podcast properly by talking about the largest health crisis affecting everyone, the opioid crisis. No matter what your socioeconomic background, education, religion, race, or gender, Everyone has been affected with friends, families, co-workers, and neighbors either battling drug addiction or having overdosed. It is challenging our healthcare system and changing our definitions of first responders who can administer Narcan to reverse the effects of an overdose. Even that the word Narcan is in the everyday language of children and adults is major. The opioid crisis has also stretched medical legal offices that may already be operating under tight budgets to their limits. 
Let's start with some definitions. Opioid is a broad term used to describe any substance, either natural or man-made or synthetic, that binds to opioid receptors in the brain. These are the receptors that control pain and pleasure. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA, and the CDC define opioids as a class of drugs that include the illegal drug heroin, synthetic or manufactured opioids such as fentanyl, and pain relievers available legally by prescription, such as oxycodone or oxycontin or oxy, hydrocodone or vicodin, codeine, morphine, and methadone. Opiate refers to natural substances that can be extracted from the flowering opium poppy plant, such as heroin, morphine, and codeine. Currently, there is an epidemic of fentanyl-related deaths. How does fentanyl compare to other opioids? Fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin, and heroin is 100 times more potent than morphine. So fentanyl is 5,000 times more potent than morphine. Both fentanyl and heroin are fast-acting, but fentanyl remains in the body longer than heroin. Heroin within a matter of minutes is metabolized to 6-monoacetylmorphine, or 6-MAM, which is then metabolized within minutes to morphine. Morphine can remain in your system for 8 to 16 hours. Because heroin itself is only in your system a very short time, laboratories will test for 6-MAM and morphine in order to catch deaths from heroin in which there may have been a short survival time, meaning those cases in which you don't die instantly. Fentanyl can remain in your system for 12 to 24 hours, and it does not break down into 6-MAM or morphine. The fentanyl that is on the streets is manufactured and is not from prescriptions. It can be snorted, ingested, swallowed in pill form, or injected. Since it is not regulated, it may contain other synthetic opioids, such as acetylfentanyl, or it can even contain heroin. This can be a source of confusion for families, as they may think their loved one only abused fentanyl, but the toxicology revealed a handful of other opiates. And the addition of these other opiates unknown to the user can greatly change the expected potency of the drug and how long it remains in the body, thus resulting in overdoses even in the most experienced users. Something that people are reading and hearing more about on the Internet and news is Narcan. What is Narcan? Naloxone, known as Narcan, is a medication to block the effects of opioids and rapidly reverse an opioid overdose. It can be injected or inhaled. It works within minutes, and its effects last about one half hour to one hour. It can be given repeatedly as the effects of Narcan may wear off before those of the opioids, and they may require repeat dosing at a later time, especially if opioids like fentanyl were used, because they last longer in the body than the Narcan. We've alluded to the opioid crisis, but can you give us some numbers to give perspective to it? Certainly. According to the CDC, in 2017, there were over 70,000 drug deaths in the United States, which is an almost 10% increase from 2016. Two-thirds, or over 47,000 of these deaths, were due to opioids. Heroin was involved in over 15,000, or 21% of drug deaths, with significant increases from 2016 noted in the states of California, Illinois, and Virginia. Fentanyl and other synthetic opioids were involved in over 28,000 or 40% of drug deaths, with significant increases from 2016 noted in West Virginia, Ohio, and New Hampshire. How does Wayne County in southeastern Michigan compare to this? 
The 2016 to 2017 increase in drug deaths at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office was not as high as was seen in the U.S. as a whole, as we experienced a 5% rise as opposed to the 10% seen throughout the United States. However, both heroin and fentanyl were involved in a greater percentage of our drug deaths, with heroin involved in 39% of these deaths and fentanyl in 57% of these deaths. What do these deaths mean for medical legal offices? The opioid crisis has increased caseloads for every jurisdiction in the United States, and in some cases is pushing offices to their breaking point. The increased workload has strained already tight budgets, created body storage concerns, and has stretched an already dwindling medical examiner workforce. Many organizations state that there are about 500 board-certified forensic pathologists working full-time in the United States, and when considering the increasing workload that the opioid crisis has created, along with other workload concerns, they estimate that there should be at least double that number or over 1,000 forensic pathologists in the United States. But that will likely never happen. That's true. The National Residency Match Data Program is a system used by medical students to apply and get accepted into residency programs. According to them, in 2019, there were close to 4,800 residency programs with over 30,000 positions filled. However, only 569 of those positions were in pathology. This means that less than 2% of medical students are choosing pathology as a career and very few of those that go into pathology will end up practicing forensic pathology. The American Board of Pathology first recognized forensic pathology as a subspecialty and offered its first board certification in 1959. According to them, 1,632 certificates have been issued since then through 2018, of which about 500 are currently working full-time. Two organizations dedicated to forensic science that you will hear us mention repeatedly are the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, or AAFS, which was founded in 1948, and the National Association of Medical Examiners, or NAME, which was founded in 1966. According to the NAME website, in 2018, only 44 of the 85 forensic pathology fellowship positions filled meaning that the United States is turning out about 40 forensic pathologists a year, of which only about 67% or less than 30 will end up practicing full-time. Now, if this sounds like a low number, it is, and the overall picture is even scarier, considering that about one-half of the full-time forensic pathologists currently working are at or beyond retirement age. We will never be able to double the number of full-time forensic pathologists needed to handle the current national caseloads, and the field is trying to find solutions to this crisis. Throughout our series, you will hear us mention some of these solutions. One of the solutions is employing anatomic pathologist assistants, or APAs, two of whom you'll be hearing from later on. Now let's discuss some famous opioid deaths. Sadly, we could talk about many deaths at this point, but we chose three that share many of the same features. Let's start with Lil Peep. Gustav Aher was professionally known as Lil Peep. He was an American rapper, singer, and songwriter whose style was a mix of emo rap and rock. Although he was 21, he had a history of depression and substance abuse and was found dead by his manager 
On his tour bus, where he was scheduled to perform at a club in Tucson, Arizona. His autopsy was performed by the medical examiner office in Pima County, and a pertinent autopsy finding was that his lungs were filled with fluid or he had pulmonary edema. If you were presented with that case and those autopsy findings, what would your thoughts be? In this age group, most young adults are fairly healthy. That is, they tend not to have major medical issues. Assuming that there were no significant findings found on autopsy, I would be very suspicious of a drug-related death and pay close attention to the toxicology results. Lil Peep's toxicology testing was performed at Access Forensic Toxicology in Indiana. It is common practice for offices without an in-house toxicology lab to send specimens to one of a few toxicology labs to have testing done. His peripheral blood was positive for fentanyl, alprazolam, which is known better by its trade name Xanax, and tramadol. Both fentanyl and alprazolam were above the therapeutic ranges. Also present in the blood were THC and THC metabolites, which comes from marijuana use, and a breakdown product of cocaine, benzoylognine, but not cocaine itself. His cause of death was determined to be combined toxic effects of fentanyl and alprazolam. And on the heels of the posthumous release of his latest album, now let's talk about Mac Miller. Malcolm McCormick, or Mac Miller, was 26 when he died. He was a hip-hop rapper, singer, songwriter, and producer. Like Lil Peep, Mac Miller also had a history of substance abuse. He was found dead in bed by his personal assistant before he was scheduled to go on tour. His autopsy was performed by the Los Angeles Medical Examiner Coroner, where pulmonary edema was also found. The toxicology testing of his peripheral blood was positive for ethanol, which is alcohol, cocaine plus two of its breakdown products, and fentanyl. His cause of death was mixed drug toxicity of fentanyl, cocaine, and ethanol. Both Lil Peep and Mac Miller were found to have pulmonary edema. Is there a significance to that? The medical term is non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Fluid can build up in the lungs for many reasons, and one of the more common ones is from the heart failure. However, that's not the cause with Lil Peep and Mac Miller. There is a debate over the exact mechanism that is causing the fluid buildup, but it's a finding that is commonly seen in drug-related deaths. As a class of drugs, opiates are depressants and they slow down the body's breathing or respiratory drive, and the resulting fluid that collects is frequently very frothy or bubbly. Sometimes there is so much of it that it can be coming out of the mouths and noses of the decedents. The fluid is not what's causing the death, it's a reflection of the drugs that were used. And finally, one of the greatest musicians of all time, Prince. Prince Rogers Nelson was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and was best known as just Prince, or for a short time, the artist formerly known as Prince. He was a talented singer, songwriter, musician, record producer, dancer, actor, and filmmaker. When he was alive, 
Prince carefully hid his substance abuse from public, but details of it were revealed through the investigation after his death. He was found in an elevator in his Minnesota estate by his bodyguard, a personal assistant, and a representative from a California drug addiction clinic who was there to meet with Prince that morning to discuss treatment. He was 57 years old and he was pronounced dead at scene by medics. His autopsy was performed at the Midwest Medical Examiner's Office in Anoka County, Minnesota. Although the autopsy and toxicology reports have not been made public record, there is a 113-page report obtained through a Freedom of Information Act to the DEA that is public record and contain vital information. A large portion of the report contains the investigation into what drugs were recovered from the house with a focus on the composition of the drugs. Most were in pill form and were opiates prepared in combination with acetaminophen. There were interesting details about the quantity and packaging of these drugs. Some were placed in CVS vitamin bottles or other types of prescription bottles. For example, there were over 64 tablets with suspected fentanyl hidden in a Bayer aspirin bottle. The report had summaries of conversations with the medical examiner that performed the autopsy and the toxicology results. Testing of the blood showed toxic levels of fentanyl, and that's what was determined to be the cause of death. As an aside, the most critical detail in determining the cause of Prince's death was finding fentanyl in the blood. However, many times how the drug used, whether it was smoked, injected, swallowed, or absorbed through the skin, cannot be determined. In Prince's autopsy, the stomach contents did test positive for high levels of fentanyl, making it fentanyl ingested in pill form. We will cover determining time of death in a future episode, but there were some indications of when Prince swallowed the pills. You're right. The day before his death, Prince was examined and treated by a physician. I don't know the reason for that visit, but he did have some blood drawn during that appointment. The blood sample was subsequently tested and it did not contain fentanyl. So that means Prince ingested the pills sometimes after the doctor's visit and before being found dead the next day. In this next portion, we're going to open up the rest of the office. We'll start by exploring the profession of pathologist's assistants. For those of you who are already familiar with the field of pathology or are working in an anatomic or surgical pathology setting, you refer to pathologist's assistants as PAs. But what can be confusing for those that aren't in pathology is that the vast majority of people, a PA is a physician's assistant. Although the two fill very different roles, the concept is similar and it's really not that hard to understand and separate. On the whole, regardless of what type of quote-unquote PA you're referring to, these individuals have received training in a specific medical specialty. For example, a physician's assistant that works in a pediatrician's office has training to treat kids. A physician's assistant that works with an orthopedic surgeon knows about rods, plates, screws, and saws. 
and a pathologist assistant has training that allows them to help a pathologist. The training and schools that they go through are not the same. As we go through this episode and future episodes so that we don't have to mention it every single time, for now on, anytime we say PA, we are referring to a pathologist assistant. Our office has three full-time PAs, and I've asked two of them to come into the recording studio for a chat. Can you please introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Kayla Dill. And I'm Brianna Kendall. Uh, How long have the two of you been here with us? I've been here almost a year and a half now. And I've been here four months. Those of us who have gone through pathology training are very familiar with what a pathologist assistant does in a hospital setting. Can you tell the general audience what it is that you do? Sure. So pathologist assistants generally work in hospital settings where they will get surgical specimens from the operating room. When we receive specimens such as uh, a simple biopsy or an appendix or a whole organ with a tumor, we will receive it, we will describe the organ, we'll describe its pathologies that's going on with the organ, and then we will submit sections for the pathologist to look under the microscope. For example, if a woman has breast cancer and undergoes a mastectomy, the specimen will then go to the pathologist assistant who will process the tissue, they'll describe the organ and its pathologies, and then they will determine which portions to submit to the pathologist to look under the microscope. In contrast, that's very much different than what you do in a forensic setting. Can you tell us about that, Brie? Yeah. So in forensic pathology, we only work with the dead, but we use the same skill set and training to perform autopsies. Unlike surgical pathology, where our goal is to assist in the diagnosis of disease or staging of cancer, in forensic pathology, we are aiming to determine the cause and manner of death. Surgical pathologist assistants may or may not also perform autopsies, but these are hospital or clinical autopsies, and they don't qualify as medical examiner's cases. If someone was interested in becoming a PA, what are the steps that they have to undergo for that? First, you'll need a four-year bachelor's degree, uh, preferably in some type of science related to cover the prerequisites to get into the program. There are 11 accredited programs within the United States and two in Canada. Each program is a two-year master's degree with the first year being academic, covering anatomy, histology, and pathologies of every organ system, as well as forensic pathology. In the second year, you will be in clinicals, rotating through different hospitals, and applying the techniques that you learn in the first year. Bree and I are both graduates of the Wayne State University's Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences PA program which included a forensic pathology clinical rotation at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office for eight weeks. We learned to eviscerate, do a block dissection, write reports, and obtain histology and toxicology during this time. Bree, you are our newest addition to our family. And how is student life different than what you're doing now? So as a student, we focused on our one case from start to finish, and we're really focused on learning the procedure. Now, as employees, we're focused on multiple cases at a time and the autopsy room as a whole. We make sure that everything that needs to be done for each case is getting done, and we ensure that workflow is on track. We also pick up slack wherever it is needed. For example, as students, we are responsible for eviscerating our case, 
but now we only perform the block dissection and the autopsy techs eviscerate for us. But because we've already been trained, we're able to eviscerate if we're short-staffed. Since being hired, we've also learned additional techniques and special dissections, such as carefully reflecting each neck muscle in an anterior neck dissection, which would be done in cases of suspected trauma, and this was previously only performed by the doctors. Relatively speaking, it's fairly uncommon to find pathologist assistants working in a forensic office. How was it that the two of you found yourselves here, and do you have any opinions about that? Nationwide, there is a shortage of forensic pathologists, which makes it difficult to hire the appropriate amount of doctors sufficient enough to cover our caseload. To make matters worse, caseloads have been steadily increasing due to the opioid epidemic. The pathologist saw an opportunity to hire PAs who have already had an eight-week training here in the office. Although this is a newer profession and there are no guidelines within the National Accrediting Agency about PAs to work with the medical examiner's office, necessity wins. To our knowledge, there are no other PAs that solely work in forensic pathology in the medical examiner setting. We do not have a surgical pathology aspect of our jobs. Thankfully, we have been successful in reducing the workload from our doctors by taking on some of their responsibilities, such as taking x-rays in the post room, preparing and sending out toxicology, and requesting additional information regarding the case, such as the decedent's history, regarding circumstances around the scene, etc. This way, they have more time to focus on signing out their cases. What are some things that people may not know that you do about the job? I don't think people realize how much teaching we do. We are responsible for orienting all of the medical students, residents, and PA students that come to the office. So we teach them how to do an external exam, the evisceration, block dissection, and how to write a preliminary autopsy report. We supervise in the autopsy room when needed, and we coordinate all of their lectures on basic forensic pathology. Additionally, we're involved in various research projects with the pathologists, and we give lectures at conferences and at Wayne State University. What are some of your future goals for yourself and for the office? We love promoting our profession, and we want to work towards getting more PAs into the forensic setting. Plenty of PAs have interest. It's just a matter of educating the medical examiner's offices and the accreditation agencies on what our skill set is what benefits we bring to the office, and how we can improve their productivity throughout the office. What are some ways you think we can accomplish that? I think just getting awareness out there that Wayne County has hired us and how successful it's been will pique interest in other offices. And I think if other interested PAs reached out to those offices and expressed their interests, then maybe those offices would take a chance on them as well. I also think um, partnering with accrediting agencies to create guidelines for PAs specifically in the office would also encourage many other offices across the country to hire PAs as well. It's just getting over that initial hurdle or that initial roadblock to accept PAs into an office. I think once that's reached, then slowly you'll see more and more APAs in the forensic setting. Exactly because forensic pathologists are absolutely needed in medical examiner's office. An office cannot be run without pathologists. Having PAs in the office is not going to take away jobs from the forensic pathologists. 
In wrapping up this interview, are there any last words that you'd like to share with the audience? I have to say that we absolutely love our jobs. We are able to help out others within our office as well as provide a very much needed service to the community. And I'd like to encourage everybody to really learn what goes on um, with a medical examiner's office and what happens to your loved ones after death. I think not a lot of people in the public really understand the things that happen. I agree. I think that, unfortunately, many people have misconceptions about what happens in a medical examiner's office or and or they're not sure of all the different roles that occur here and simply don't know that your position exists. So the strength of word of mouth and exposure to the community will really help our profession. With the integration of our three PAs into the office and experiencing the impact that they've had, it's hard for me to imagine not having them around. Brianna, Kayla, thank you for coming on with us. Thank you. Thank you. Another position that is critical in the operations of this office, and unfortunately oftentimes underappreciated, is the clerical staff. Most people think that clerical is a behind-the-scenes desk job in a forensic office and that they don't really interact with the public. And that can't be farther from the truth. Obviously, the responsibilities of the clerical staff differs from office to office, but it is not uncommon for our clerical staff to interface with the public. In our office, they staff the front desk and are the very first person grieving families see on entering the office, and it's clerical that guides the family through the steps of identifying and claiming the bodies of their loved ones. I'd like to introduce you to Tamika Holmes, and she's one of our clerical staff. Uh, Good morning. I am Tamika Holmes. I am a part of the clerk staff here, and um, I have lots of duties. Tamika, how is it that you came to be here? We are a part of the University of Michigan staff. I transferred here from Ann Arbor at the cardiovascular center that's attached to the hospital. I have always had a liking to forensics. I majored in forensic anthropology at the University of Michigan. A opening came about, and that's how I ended up here. How long have you been with the office? A little over two years. Now, you mentioned that you have a lot of duties. Can you go over with us what some of those are? Um, A part of my main duty is to assist the pathologist with autopsy reports and to help families at the front desk located in the lobby. And what is it that you do at the front desk? While I'm at the front desk, I assist families with identifying their loved ones when they need to come in to um, claim someone, per se. Something that I get from family members or something that the public doesn't really know is the steps that are actually involved in the identification process. Some people might think that we pull the body out from this drawer that's in a wall and then they physically look at a body. And that's really not what happens here. Can you walk us through the steps of how the identification process really is? So what happens is a family is notified that a loved one has been found Uh, The loved one could have been missing, and the family could have been looking for a particular person. Uh, Once Investigations uh, has a name for a person, they do research to locate a family. 
The family then comes down, and there is a identification room that they all go into. A photograph of the loved one is pulled up on a television screen, and then they get to see the person, but not the actual body. With your interaction with the public and the family, what are some of the challenges that you're presented with? The first challenge for me is the emotional side. When a family comes in, they are typically in a mourning state where they are crying or they are upset, and yet they have to give me the correct information when they come in. So it means that I have to be emotionally sound and mentally alert to help them when they come in. That is my number one challenge. Um, I have gotten people that come in who are intoxicated. That's challenging to have to discuss a loved one that passed with someone who's intoxicated or inebriated. There, There are quite a few challenges. Those are definitely the top two. So those are the family members that the investigators have already contacted. Who else might come into the office? I do have to interact with funeral home directors that come in because they need to get cremation permit requests signed. And some cases they have to get death certificates signed by a doctor here because they may be having some issues with a person who passed and the primary care physician is not available. Those are all the physical interactions. Now, I know I've heard the telephone ring many times before, and I'm sure you're involved with that, too. Of course. So there is the main phone line that anyone can call to ask questions about a case. Um, I have people call in wanting to know the cause of death for a loved one. People call for copies of autopsy reports, including general public, law enforcement, attorneys, You're providing them with autopsy reports? I do. I provide them with copies of the autopsy reports, investigative reports, and some departments have a probation or parole department where a parolee or a probationer passes and they need proof that the person has passed. So I also send out copies of uncertified death certificates. Not that you've been here for two years, What are some things that have surprised you about this profession? We have a lot of cases, and we are terribly busy. I was not aware how busy until I got here and noticed that it's it's ongoing. Are there any misconceptions that you had or other people might have had about your position here? I think the misconception is that I have downtime. I never have downtime. I am always working on cases. Now, this episode revolves around drug deaths. In the context of a suspected drug overdose, is there anything that is unique or different about communicating a drug death compared to other types of death? Yes. Uh, Drug deaths are very sensitive to families because once a person uh, passes from a drug overdose, a lot of times the family and friends are in a state of extreme denial. And that denial can be expressed in anger and frustration. How do you deal with that? I deal with it by listening. 
and being patient. When you tell a family that a loved one has passed from a drug overdose, the family may not have known that the person was even using drugs, and it may be a total shock and surprise to them. So I need to be uh, sympathetic and show empathy to the people that it happens to. I have to, a lot of times, put myself in someone else's shoes as though, you know, I got that same news about one of my loved ones. I would be uh, hurt, upset, and maybe somewhat in a state of denial myself. Are there cases where people are actually relieved that it's a drug overdose? Yes. Um, Maybe in some cases where the manner of death is a suicide. Uh, A lot of times people will say, well, that person had to have been using drugs in order to harm themselves uh, by hanging or shooting. And sometimes that's not the case. And that makes people upset as well. It seems as though if drugs is involved, that the family in some ways seemed like that is more of a closure to think that the person maybe wasn't in their right mind because they used the drugs. And that could have been why the person committed suicide. When it comes to closure, it doesn't always happen at the same time. I'm sure some people will call the office once, twice, many times before they ultimately have this resolution. Is that something that you've experienced? Yes. So let's say a family member called and said, well, I want to know how my brother passed. Well, I'll say it was a cocaine and heroin toxicity, drug overdose. And the person will say, well, there is no way that he died of an overdose because I never saw him using drugs. Well, in that case, I have to be pretty firm with the person. Now, the person takes that information to say, well, okay, and they will hang up. Well, one minute later, I get another phone call, and the person will give me the name and the case number, and I know that I just talked to someone about the exact same case, and it'll be a different person wanting to know the cause of death. I get that a lot. So sometimes it'll be three, four, five people calling for the same case around the same time just because the whole family may be in a denial. If you had to give some advice to someone who's looking to become employed in a medical examiner's office, what would you tell them? You really need to know within yourself that this is something that you can deal with on a daily basis because someone can say they want to do it But when they get here and they see death and they're around death every day, it may be different. It can be a tough job. You just need to be mentally aware that the people that come here were someone's loved ones. And you need to treat each case as though the person was a part of your family. And you need to be confident about the choice that you make when you decide to come into this field of work. Tamika, thank you very much for coming on with us. 
So that wraps up this episode. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us at Detroit's Daily Docket at gmail.com. That's Detroit's Daily Docket, no apostrophe, at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and join us for our next episode. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening. <laughs>